The College Game Day podcast is presented by Old Dominion Freight Line, helping the world keep promises. We got a real simple plan. One me and one mission. Georgia has won the national championship. You're a fan, you might think this is sports heaven. This might be college football heaven. This is ESPN's College Game Day podcast. Now alongside Pete Thamel, is Reese Davis. The real changing of the guard that happened this weekend. Why is it so hard for some teams to find the much-needed reset button and a potential concession to one of my central tenets for selecting college football playoff teams? This is the College Game Day podcast for Monday, November 7th. Reese Davis with you. Pete Thamel is under the weather this morning. He was with us on our college game day Zoom meeting, and he was wearing a beanie because I think he was having the chills. He sounded terrible, but otherwise in decent enough health, bringing good ideas, but decided that he would uh, spare us the difficulties with his voice for this edition of the podcast. We'll have Pete back on Wednesday for sure. You know, as I was riding in to Sanford Stadium Saturday afternoon on a golf cart, driven by the great Foo and alongside the great Pete Thamel and Jess Sims was with us. I looked at them and all you have to do, by the way, as I offer an aside is look at my record in picks and know that I'm uh, often wrong, but never in doubt. I looked at them and I said, I think Georgia is about to put a butt stomping on Tennessee, but if they don't, Tennessee is going to win the national championship. Well, the the butt stomping occurred, and it didn't take long for it to happen. You could feel the seeds of that coming during the week with all of the talk about Tennessee's great offense, and deservedly so. It is a great offense, and Heupel has been sensational, and Hendon Hooker has been brilliant in his renaissance as a veteran quarterback. But there were anonymous coaches telling Pete Thamel they thought Tennessee was going to put 50 on Georgia. There were all of these complex formations and shifts and short motions and switch releases that were impossible to defend. No one could ever fathom any way that anybody could ever stop this juggernaut of an offense. You think Georgia heard that? It's pretty apparent Kirby Smart did. When Kirby Smart came to our game day set to join us, Kirby is always excitable on game day, as you've probably seen. But he was speaking in rapid-fire, definitive pace. Talking really fast, which is not terribly unusual. Not Jimbo Fisher fast, but that's in an entirely different league. But it wasn't one of nerves. It was one of just almost frothing at the mouth to turn those Bulldogs loose and to remind people who they were, who held the trophy, Who was the biggest and the baddest, not only in the SEC, but in the country? So here comes this Tennessee team that led the nation by a long shot in 30-yard plays. If memory serves, I think they had 36 plays of 30 yards or longer from scrimmage on the season. You know how many they had against Georgia? Zero. Their long run was 11 yards. Their long pass on the day was 28 yards. Meanwhile, Georgia, pedestrian old offensive Georgia, pass plays of 37, 49, 52, handful of 10-plus yard runs, including Stetson Bennett's first brilliant TD. 
And there was no doubt that while Tennessee is coming and Tennessee is good and Tennessee might well be a college football playoff team by the end of this crazy season, there is one thing that is beyond dispute. Tennessee ain't Georgia and they're not close. 27-13 could have been 49-3. I didn't see a whole lot of difference in terms of discrepancy other than Tennessee continued to fight hard in the differences in evaluating Georgia and evaluating Oregon. Now, maybe I'll get to that in a little bit because uh, all of this has sort of served to temper my view on Oregon. I still think that's an albatross around their neck that's probably too hard to overcome in terms of making the college football playoff. But in terms of being dominated, I didn't feel like that uh, <laughs> that what I witnessed on Saturday afternoon on the sidelines was really that much different than what we witnessed in the opening day. Tennessee's terrific, man, and Tennessee might well be a playoff team, and I'm not opposed to that. In fact, I still think they've got a really, really good shot at still making the playoff. And the unfortunate thing for them is if they do make the playoff, they'll probably see that mean machine in red and black coming down the track again, and that won't end well, man. That won't end well at all if, if everyone stays healthy. The biggest thing that I thought that happened from a schematic standpoint for Georgia was the guys in the middle up front. Now, they had several sacks. Uh, you know, they were able to, to get to Hendon Hooker. They pressured him a lot. He didn't throw a touchdown pass. But watching Jalen Carter, who's been dealing with an injury, and Nazir Stackhouse particularly, being disruptive in the middle, and making Hendon Hooker a little more uncomfortable than he has been in the past led to him missing some opportunities. Now, Tennessee did have a couple of open receivers at times in the game where they might have had some of those 30-plus yard plays, might have even had an explosive touchdown play. And Hendon overshot his man a couple of times, and that's not to cast aspersions at him. That's to show you what happens when you get real pressure on a quarterback. And they were going to make Hendon Hooker be accurate, be decisive, and fit the ball into a keyhole. And and when you do that on most plays, even when the keyhole becomes a wide-open receiver, sometimes you're anxious, sometimes you turn it loose because you think the pressure's coming, or maybe, in fact, you turn it loose because the pressure is indeed coming. And that was usually the case on Saturday. And you miss. And that's why... I don't see anything that would change if these two teams were to play again in the college football playoff. But Georgia's grabbing of the throne and the dominance in the SEC that occurred Saturday was more than them just being the reigning champions of college football. It was more than them just beating back a challenger and doing what kings do. When challengers to your authority and your dominance come in, you crush their face. You don't give them any hope. That's what Georgia did. But Saturday, to me, highlighted and put in bold face why the new standard bearer in college football overall is the Georgia Bulldogs. And you might say, well, they're already reigning champions. That's great insight there. But here's what I mean by that. You can win a championship and not be the standard bearer. That's happened in the past. Even years when Alabama didn't win the championship, they were still the standard bearer. But Georgia, as reigning champion, 
and then to beat back a challenger that it was really the, even though they, I think they wound up as being 10 point underdogs by the end of the uh, betting Tennessee. I mean, they were still sort of the darlings of everybody. Everybody was excited about them. And if you're the standard bearer, you put people in their place and you restore the order, man. And that's what Georgia did on Saturday. And because of that, when you combine that with what happened and really what's happened all year, but what happened in Baton Rouge later that night to Alabama, it is unequivocal that Georgia is the standard in the SEC. Now, the Bulldogs are going to have to keep it up for another decade or so, and they're going to have to win a few more championships along the way before we evaluate them in the same grand scheme historical context as you would view this Saban dynasty and whether the window is closing or has, in fact, closed on that. There is still more things to be accomplished for Georgia in the long term if they are going to be viewed historically in that regard. But for this moment in time, the standard is Georgia. And they established that in no uncertain terms on Saturday. It was a remarkable, you know, completely remarkable atmosphere. A crowd that at times has been great. I was there for the Arkansas game a year ago, and it was a top 10 matchup, and it was off the off the chain loud. But I've been there a lot of times over the years, and it's not overly intimidating. It was on Saturday. It forced Tennessee, even with all of their silent counts and preparations, it forced them into false starts. I think it got them rattled at times. And Georgia was just a bigger, stronger, faster, more physical team. And Georgia is the team to beat from this point forward. Now, the good news, I think, if you are an Ohio State fan, is I do think that Ohio State uh, is equipped to do so. And they are probably uh, what one would say is a uh, extra super turbocharged version of Tennessee, not schematically, but in terms of uh, they've got more elite receivers than Tennessee's got great receivers. Ohio State has more of them and arguably perhaps better versions of them. Uh, Hendon Hooker is terrific. One would argue that perhaps C.J. Stroud is even better. And perhaps um, perhaps Ohio State's a little more settled uh, on defense now under Jim Knowles, though they certainly haven't been tested in a way that, that Georgia will test them. So I'm not declaring Georgia as uh, a shoe-in, unchallenged for a national championship. I'm just saying that they have established themselves as a standard bearer in college football, something that basically for the last decade, if not 15 years, has been exclusively in the hold of Alabama, maybe occasionally challenged by Clemson. but it is now Georgia. And I think that there, I think there's so many places you could go to give credit. Kirby Smart is at the top. He starts. Will Muschamp, Glenn Schumann, this defense, they've been terrific. Um, offensive coordinator Todd Munkin has been great. But I put a lot of this, a lot of the, the Georgia heartbeat, even though they're a defensive team, the Georgia heartbeat, the energy, the crap in the neck, if you will, to use an old Southern expression and to clean it up a little bit, is Stetson Bennett. Did you see Stetson Bennett on Saturday? Did you see the attitude, the swagger, the defiance, the the taunting after the touchdown? Did you see the athleticism that he put on display on that first touchdown run, escaping what looked to be a sack? a little high step out of it, and then off he goes, you know, headed headed to the end zone and finding the pylon. Um, a tremendous play 
that early on helped set the tone after Georgia had had an early turnover. But the play that will resonate with me throughout the rest of Stetson Bennett's career, and if you've listened to this podcast for the last couple of years, you know that I, along with David Pollack, have been chief on the Stetson Bennett bandwagon that, okay, he's not the biggest. Okay, he wasn't the highest rated recruit, if rated at all. Dude's good. I mean, not just good, like legit good. The touchdown pass he threw to make it 21-3 to Marcus Rosemey Jackson in the back of the end zone was a flat NFL throw, man. NFL. He put it over a safety by millimeters. Didn't put it in a, he put it where only his receiver could get it, but not in a ridiculous place. So there would have to be a superhuman catch. There was, I talk about throwing the ball into a keyhole. There was a keyhole there and it was teensy tiny. It was like one that you would try to pick a lock with a, a bobby pin or a straight pin or something. And Stetson put that baby right there. And Rosemary Jackson made the catch in the back of the end zone, and that ball game was over long before the rain came. And for all of the detractors, doubters, he'll come back to earth. Eventually, he's going to be the guy to cost him. No, he's not. He's the reason they win, because they follow him. He, he's got an edge to him. His teammates love him. He He's huge, and for all of the – people who deserve to be considered in the Heisman Trophy evaluation. I wouldn't have him at the top of my list, but he's on my list, and he deserves to be there. That that dude can play. He's going to go down, uh, particularly if they win a second national championship with him at quarterback. And I'll concede, I don't think Stetson's going to be a great NFL quarterback. I mean, I hope he is. I would love for him. I would love to be the last one who believed in him and then to finally be proven wrong on the even bigger stage of the NFL. I don't, I, I wouldn't put a lot of money on that, but I will put money on this. If he wins another national championship, he's going to go down as one of the greatest quarterbacks in SEC and in college football history. I mean, he'll have two national championships. He will have put up numbers. He will have big time plays. He'll have the, the late touchdown pass against Alabama in the championship game last year. He'll have this game against Tennessee on a big stage. He's going to have the SEC championship game this year and potentially two playoff games. So the opportunity is there. And if he comes through and plays well in those games, the way he's capable of playing, the way he has played, uh, the way he's playing with his confidence, he's going to etch his name in the annals of great college players. Now, does that mean that, you know, that he's greater than the elite quarterbacks of all time? I'm not saying that. I'm saying that when you evaluate great college quarterbacks and you start tying in everything, including, I don't believe in quarterback win-loss record, but if you're the leader of the team, you do get some credit for leading them to championships. If he leads his team to two national championships, which seems entirely possible, not a given, but entirely possible. He's on the list, man. Like it, don't like it, too bad. And I don't think Stetson cares much either. And uh, I don't know if he's changing his phone number either because that was pretty funny. Apparently, he was getting bombarded by calls and texts from Tennessee fans during the week to try to distract him or perhaps help him or help keep him from getting a good night's rest before he faced the vaunted Big Orange. And 
Well, that didn't work very well. Not not very well at all. Weekend Review is brought to you by Eckridge Smoked Sausage. Find them in the refrigerated meat aisle at your favorite grocery store to create one-of-a-kind sausage recipes. Eckridge, you do you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, as invincible as Georgia looked on Saturday, we see that they are prone to being human as well. Uh, The Missouri game, Kent State game. uh, But when interested, Georgia uh, looks to be the best team. They're going to be number one in the college football playoff rankings when that's released on Tuesday night. And then they'll have the new set of circumstances to deal with, with no longer being able to say, hey, people are overlooking the champion and, and being able to get their attention because they're going to be at the top of the heap. And they are as susceptible to human nature as anyone else. We've seen that a couple of times, and they've lived to tell about it. But Saturday felt like a turning point game to me, and one in which Georgia uh, sort of collectively realized where they are in the calendar, what is possible in front of them, and they flexed they flexed their muscle. Other teams did not necessarily do that, Alabama and Clemson being most notable among them. Those are two teams that are standard bearers. They've been hallmarks. Uh, they have been they have cornered the market on college football playoff spots. And Alabama certainly won't be in the playoff. And I can't fathom a scenario in which Clemson would get back into the mix and and get into the playoffs. So those two teams are going to be out of it, and they're looking for uh, for a reset. I'm going to get to Clemson in a minute because there were some really troubling things in that game. Uh, I think for the long term for Clemson, the game that they lost handily to Notre Dame. I mean, you want to talk about getting your face beaten in. That's exactly what happened to Clemson and South Bend as the Irish just bullied them all night. But I really think that the Georgia dynamic combined with Alabama's step back and LSU's ascension combined with Tennessee's ascension creates an interesting dynamic in the Southeastern Conference and the power structure that is there and what's going to come up in the in the next few seasons. We know for a fact that Tennessee is coming. Tennessee's roster is not what it's going to be in a couple of years. And this hypo offense, as they continue to be able to recruit quarterbacks and receivers because of the big numbers they're going to put up and they get more depth uh, along the lines of scrimmage, they're going to be formidable and they're going to have to be dealt with by Georgia and everyone else. They're going to be a contender for the foreseeable future, uh, one would think. LSU has always had talent, and even after an exodus of some of that talent during the end of the Ogeron era and the arrival of Brian Kelly and the question about fit and all of that, after that win, because of what that win means to people in Louisiana, to LSU boosters, to the fan base, to the former players, Brian Kelly was formally adopted, paper stamped and signed into the family when he got that two-point conversion and beat Bama on Saturday night. It proved a number of things. One, it proved Brian Kelly wasn't, pro- wasn't 
playing to avoid losing to Alabama. He was playing to win. Believed his team could win. Also, uh, Brian is a guy who has the utmost confidence in his ability to establish a program and to challenge the great coaches, the great programs in the sport, and to make his one of those great programs. And while he had excellent teams at Notre Dame and he had high-end NFL players at many positions, as he told me in in a conversation just a, a day or two after he took the LSU job, there's certainly a difference in recruiting at LSU access to players within a smaller geographical footprint while still maintaining the ability to recruit on a nationwide scale that gives you an ability to make the roster deeper and perhaps uh, particularly at the wide receiver cornerback uh, positions, the explosive plays, you can have more elite players than oftentimes it appeared he was able to get in at Notre Dame. Now, the flip side of that is that Marcus Freeman's recruiting at a really high level, so he might challenge that narrative in the coming years as well. But as we stay on LSU, this is going to give them a bump in recruiting. It's going to give them a bump in confidence, uh, barring uh, face planning on the road, which isn't out of the realm of possibility, but they almost certainly are going to be in the SEC championship game. Uh They've got a road game at Arkansas on Saturday. They still have to go to Texas A&M. If they win those two, they're in. If uh, if Alabama does them a favor and beats Ole Miss on Saturday, LSU could even still lose one of those games and, and still be in. But what they would like to do is continue this uh, this momentum and go in and see if they could challenge Georgia and maybe uh, maybe catch the dogs napping or catch them on a bad day or outplay them for a single day and make their case for the college football playoff. And it would be a a really interesting one. But Brian has stayed away from a lot of that talk and a lot of that uh, this year being the be-all, end-all. Certainly he wants to do that. I'm not diminishing the desire to go to the playoff. But the bigger focus for LSU is to build the program in the long term. And what happens Saturday night is a cornerstone upon which you can build. And Brian Kelly will. It leaves a lot of other programs in the conference in in a difficult spot. One of them, I think, is going to be Ole Miss and Lane Kiffin. With Tennessee coming, with Georgia established, with LSU uh, coming, does Lane Kiffin believe that he can get the players necessary consistently? Does he have the resources available that the other, that his competitors have available to him? to be able to be in that realm. No Miss has only lost one game, got blown out at LSU, and can stay right in the mix if they beat Alabama on Saturday. But I think it really creates some interesting questions about whether Lane Kiffin should Auburn pursue him, view that as a better opportunity to stay in that realm than what he has currently at Ole Miss. But the real question is that for the last decade and a half, Alabama has been the team against which all other programs are measured, and that's not the case today. It's not the case for the rest of the season. It's not the case going into next year. Alabama has shown a remarkable ability in recent years under Nick Saban to sense the winds of change and adapt. He did it when he brought in Lane Kiffin, went away from a real you know, conservative-style offense, embraced the quicker pace of college football, started uh, being able to land and not only land, but also turn loose 
uh, elite level quarterbacks. And this has been a quarterback driven program uh, for the last, you know, four or five years. The the 2016 team when Jalen Hurts was a freshman quarterback was a defensive driven team, I would argue. And, and probably even 17 until Tua took over in the championship game, still largely driven by the defense. But since then, this has been based on the quarterback and based on the offense. So he's shown the ability to adapt. But now the defense has slipped to a point where Saban has to look at his program and see what type of facelift, renovation, reset button that they need. Because the defense has been the one that let them down. The offensive line has plenty of issues. Bill Connolly, our buddy who joins us for Picks on Friday, wrote a great article on ESPN.com documenting some of the problems from a metric standpoint that Alabama's had on the offensive line in terms of a blown block rate, offensive line penalties, um, you know, consistently blocking in the running game. All of those numbers are close to the bottom in the country. Some of the overall traditional Stats have been bailed out a little bit by big runs, say, by Jameer Gibbs, mostly. But they've had some offensive line issues. But the biggest problem they've had is on defense. They don't create turnovers. They don't force as many negative plays as they ought to, given the personnel that they have, particularly in pass rushers. So you ask yourself, well, why is that? And you have to really want to know the answer to a question if you're going to ask it. Did Saban... um, make missteps in terms of some of the some of the staff changes that he made in the offseason. There's no denying that the the three most talented pass rushers, while still good and still had some moments um, against LSU, they haven't finished plays, meaning Will Anderson, Dallas Turner, Chris Bar- Braswell, the way they uh, have in previous seasons. Is that a result of being schemed against? Is that the result of getting the ball out quickly? Is that the result of double teams? All of those things may be true. But they haven't produced at that level. They haven't forced havoc and turnovers the way they have before. And so when Bryce Young creates magic and gives Alabama a chance to save themselves, as he has done time and time and time again over the last couple of years, watching the game, you didn't feel like that Alabama was going to drop the hammer the way, say, Georgia did against Tennessee and shut down any hope. You felt like that even when they got to third down, that probably the quarterback was going to get loose that he, you know, that as Jaden Daniels did time and time again, that's not the way they've been built. That's not what they've built their brilliance on the last several years. So the question becomes what's wrong. I don't think that anybody that is a coordinator at the university of Alabama or ever has been a coordinator is not a tremendous football coach. They are tremendous football coaches, whether it's a, you know, Heat Golding, now the defensive coordinator. Bill O'Brien, now the offensive coordinator. Those guys are terrific, smart guys. Every now and then, you need a reset because you need a different voice. And Nick has been pretty wise about when to give other voices opportunities to be heard and have an impact on the identity of his football team, of which this team does not have an identity. Alabama doesn't look like Alabama out there, at least in terms of the uh, championship juggernaut that we've seen the last few years. So what's it going to be? You know, are they going to try to build it around more defense? Are they, you know, they are almost certainly going to change offensive coordinators, not because Bill O'Brien's not terrific. He is, and he's putting up plenty of points to win. 
guy's been an NFL head coach. I mean, he's, you know, he's not going to sit in a coordinator's chair that long. He's a, a coveted property on the head coaching market. And I feel like Bill will, will get one of the jobs someplace um, college or NFL, because he's a really, really good coach. And he, he's, so they're going to almost by default have to make a move on offense. And the question is, do they need a different voice on defense? And if so, how much voice, how much of that voice is heard and trusted by Nick Saban, who himself is a defensive guru? But, you know, that, that doesn't look like Alabama. And I think that they're, uh, they're due a, a reset and they're going to be a big favorite against Saturday against Ole Miss. And I'm not sure that we've seen a lot that would indicate that they'll answer the bell because it's not like they didn't play hard. They played hard against LSU. They just don't play cleanly and they don't play often enough, particularly on defense in a way that makes a difference in the game, you know, in terms of making the big strip sack, getting the interception, breaking up the, uh, the key pass. They haven't done that. And perhaps it's a different voice that's needed to get there. That seems like it's a tweak that needs to be made. Also looking for the reset button is Clemson. What Clemson did against Notre Dame stunned me because they didn't really do anything. I thought that the one thing I could count on when watching Clemson play was that defensive front. They're immensely talented, and you're going to find that out when the NFL draft comes around, not only this year, but in subsequent years a lot of Clemson defensive linemen are going to have their name called. Notre Dame on Saturday night ran, ran, without the real threat of a passing game, for 263 yards against that vaunted Clemson front. They got nearly two yards per carry before contact. All but but just around 100 yards of their rushing total came before contact. Nearly 3.6 yards per carry before contact was the best performance of the season by Notre Dame and about double what they had against UNLV. Nearly half of the carries that Notre Dame had went for five yards or longer. So there are questions about the Clemson offense and what are they going to do at quarterback and all of this. But I would say that the other big question is why didn't they dominate that game on the defensive front? I know they give up the punt block again. Notre Dame's punt block unit, by the way, is stinking elite too. That is that they are out scheming folks on punt protection and blocking punts where they blocked or deflected. I think, you know, four or five in the last two games, they lead the nation in it. I mean, that's that's great coaching, by the way, and finding ways to win against a team that is not necessarily always going to move the ball down the field and score easily. They got the defensive touchdowns uh, with the pick sixes, but they also controlled the ball on offense against Clemson's defense, and Clemson wasn't able to do enough about it. It is fair to say that the bigger problem is probably a quarterback and on offense, but the one thing I thought I could count on to lead them to victory and keep them in the picture on Saturday night. Didn't. And the defensive front, you can argue, okay, they got worn down. uh, They got discouraged, whatever it might be. And all those things are, I'm sure played a role into it. There's no doubt about that. You know, the game is not played in a vacuum. One, one thing affects the other, but I, I, I thought that there would be more of a dominant feel from Clemson's defensive front all season long, really. And even go back to the Wake Forest game 
where, you know, it seemed to me that, okay, well, the defensive front can still get pressure, but if you get the ball out, you can take advantage of them downfield. And that was when I, look, I was dead wrong in my evaluation of the type of team that could beat Clemson. I didn't think Notre Dame um, had those capabilities. They, they in, in all honesty, they really don't in terms of beating you downfield. I what they I'd have to look the box again. I don't think they threw for a hundred yards or maybe just a little over something like that, but you know, they ran the ball so effectively. They came up with the big plays on defense, but Clemson's defensive front couldn't dominate the game and create those types of opportunities for themselves to, to force the big turnover, to give the very short field to score themselves. And I think, I think there is a, at both programs, at both of these great programs with the uh, multiple college football playoff appearances and multiple national championships, there's almost a, a I would term it a staleness that will be very challenging for Dabo Sweeney and Nick Saban to address. How do you push the right button to reinvigorate the program? They're not awful programs. They've lost a grand total of three games between them this year. Alabama's lost their two on the last play of the game, though one could argue they're also two plays away from having four losses. So there's been a, and, you know, and Clemson's escaped a couple of times as well, both, you know, against Syracuse and against Wake Forest. There's a feeling like that it needs an energy surge there of some type, that it needs some type of different voice, not in the head coaching position, Obviously, these two guys are giants and titans of their profession, even from a historical context. But within the organization, that there needs to be some type of different voice, whether that's a little tweak in, in scheme, whether that's a different coordinator voice, whether that's a, a different approach in, in the way you go about the week or whatever. And I don't mean an overhaul here. I'm talking facelift. Because when you have great success, there's no reason to scrap the whole thing. But there's a staleness that's very hard to overcome if you don't address it. And I think that's what both of these both of these programs are facing right now. And the big challenge for both of them is to be brave enough to not be caught up in. A, I think this is especially true for Clemson. Not to be so stubborn and, uh, well, we've had a lot of success around here and we're really good and this is what we do and it's been good enough to win two national championships and play for a couple more and we're not changing because we know. Now, if you really believe that, go ahead, man. Go ahead. I mean, that's what you should do. But if you're doing it just because people like me are telling you, man, this looks a little stale. Maybe you ought to look at this then maybe you should because one of the toughest things any of us have to do in life is to sit on that edge of the bed in the morning and say, what am I doing that I know I'm doing that I could change right now and make things better? You got to be brave enough to do it. I think that uh, I think that's a real challenge. I think it's particularly a challenge for, uh, for Dabo because I, I love Dabo. I think he's a tremendous guy and a wonderful influence on, on young men and on his players. But he can take sometimes uh, a comment like I'm making right now and take it as an affront or a challenge and, and be defiant. Now, that's part of what's made him great. That's part of what has allowed him to elevate himself to be one of the great coaches in college football today and will go down in history as one of the great program builders and, and great coaches of this era and of any era. 
But that stubborn streak can get you in trouble if you're not willing to evaluate. And if you honestly evaluate and say, we there's a specific problem, it's a, a personnel problem at one or two positions, and we're going to address that, and that's all we need to change. Fair enough. That, that's what you should do. But I think staleness is a really hard thing to overcome. And Saturday, when college game day goes to Austin, we're going to see exhibit A of what addressing the staleness while a huge gamble can pay off big time. TCU plays Texas this weekend. College game day is going to be there. Road game for the Horn Frogs, undefeated, kings of the comeback. Uh, this this great offense led by Max Duggan and Quentin Johnston, never out of a game, no matter how many times they get behind. Going into last season, there were a lot of people who evaluated the uh, prognosticated the season that felt like TCU had a chance to be really, really good. And they weren't. And it kind of came apart. And uh, Gary Patterson, who I have great affinity and respect for, who has a statue in front of Amon G. Carter Stadium because he put TCU back on the map. They hadn't been on the map really since the Davey O'Brien, Sammy Baugh dynasties in the 30s. Uh, you know, exception certainly, they may be good seasons here and there, but they hadn't been on the map since then until Gary Patterson put them there with undefeated seasons and Rose Bowl victories, things that were incomprehensible prior to his arrival. But it had gotten stale. Gary's still a brilliant coach, and I I suppose that since he is an analyst now with Texas, TCU is going to be reminded just how brilliant, uh, at least in some way, shape, form, or fashion, uh, in some way on Saturday night. Not predicting loss, just saying that I think that his knowledge and impact uh, on Texas will be evident uh, in that game. But it had gotten stale, and it is a fair question to say, um, a fair question to say, would TCU be undefeated and putting up these kinds of numbers and getting up off the deck from three-score deficits had they not changed anything? It is also a fair argument to say that Gary had earned the right perhaps to try to change these things himself, if you are so inclined. But there is no denying the fact that bringing Sonny Dykes in and changing from uh, what had evolved into a better offensive approach uh, under Gary than perhaps what it had been early in his tenure, but was still largely the identity, even when they struggled, the identity was around Gary Patterson as a defensive guru. It's a fair thing to say, and almost a reasonable one to say, that had TCU not addressed this staleness that they had in one fashion or another, and they chose to do it by changing head coaches, that they probably wouldn't be in the position that they're in right now. So Sonny Dykes gets credit for that, but a lot of these players, Max Duggan was Gary Patterson's starting quarterback. Quentin Johnston was a guy that uh, that Gary brought in. A lot of the guys who are cr- contributing on both sides of the ball. In fact, the vast majority of them are Gary Patterson guys, if you will. So that lends a level of intrigue to the game on Saturday night where college game day is going to be. But it also underscores this need for addressing staleness in your program. I don't think it always has to be by changing the head coach. In fact, it would be beyond stupid to even suggest addressing it in such a way at Clemson or Alabama. That, that's, a, that's a foolish thing to say that doesn't 
uh, doesn't deserve a response should someone say that. But the head coach then has to figure out how he's going to address that because it is something that can sort of permeate and set into a program. And staleness is different from lack of effort. I don't watch Clemson play. I don't watch Alabama play and perceive a lack of effort, perceive a lack of execution, a lack of, uh, I don't know if it's being out schemed. It was against Tennessee for Alabama for sure. And maybe it was Saturday night. It certainly was on the punt block team for uh, Notre Dame against Clemson's punt team on Saturday night. But I don't sense a, a lack of effort. In fact, I sense great effort for both of those teams. I think both those teams play with great pride. But there's something uneasy about both of them that doesn't seem to have that edge that has elevated them from the area where they are now, which is a couple of good teams, a couple of capable teams, a couple of capable teams, uh, extraordinarily prone to self-inflicted wounds that will hurt them uh, very badly. That That's the staleness I mean. I'm not I'm not at all in the camp that believes that either of these teams are playing hard. I think they're both playing really hard. Maybe they're trying too hard. Maybe part of the staleness is they are carrying the weight of the expectations of being great that come along with being at Clemson, being at Alabama. You can see it at Ohio State from time to time, where when you're there, the only acceptable thing is greatness, is dominance. And sometimes for whatever reason, it just doesn't click with a certain team. That's really the magic of being a head coach. And that's really the biggest challenge for Nick Saban and for Dabo Sweeney right now is to ascertain whether that means changes in coaching staff and the voices that they're hearing or differences in personnel and guys who have a greater ability to affect the other guys around them to play with more precision, play and make fewer mistakes and elevate them back to the place that they were. And it's one of the reasons I think when you've seen a the great success that LSU has had this season after getting off to a rocky start is because they have some freshness, some energy. There's a new voice. There are new ideas. There's a new standard. There's a guy who knows what he's doing and has established himself as a huge winner over the course of his career, dating back to Grand Valley State, Central Michigan, Cincinnati, and certainly at Notre Dame. And they believe in it. And they needed a seminal moment to cap that belief. And now they've got it. LSU will have to deal with all the pats on the back that they're getting this week against uh, as they go into the game against Arkansas on the road and then later a game against Texas A&M on the road. But I believe this is where, this is why you pay $9 million a year, whatever it is, for an elite head coach. Because you have a guy who's been down this path who knows how to put his team in the right frame of mind. I think LSU is going to handle this very well. But I do think it's a very different team dynamic when you are building when you are pursuing and chasing and trying to get to the top and trying to knock off Alabama. You can believe then. Sometimes when you've done it for a long time, the thing that seeps in is you're trying to protect. And that's sort of what I sense from both Alabama and Clemson is that they're trying to protect their position. 
But you have programs like LSU, and they believe in what they're doing. You have programs like Tennessee, despite what happened to them against Georgia on Saturday. They believe. They know they're coming. They're they're pointing toward the pinnacle when they can have those landmark moments. Tennessee has had a couple for their program and came up short once. And sometimes you can find great growth in that ability to respond after you've had a disappointment when as you win, the stakes get higher. Stakes got higher for Tennessee. They weren't up to the challenge this time. Maybe next time they will be. Maybe next year they will be. But when you're building, you can generate that type of belief and energy and generate that cause. The cause is missing, at least as perfectly defined as it needs to be for Clemson and Alabama because it feels like right or wrong. But when you watch them, you get the idea that they're trying to protect something that they really don't have right now. You know, they don't, they're, they don't have a championship to protect. They're supposed to be pursuing one. And, and you feel like there's an, an anxiety an anxiousness there with both programs that ended up uh, hurting them very different fashions. It hurt them on Saturday night. Clemson, Clemson sort of got a can of whooping open on their rear end, which as Dabo pointed out is, has been really, really rare uh, for, for Clemson in this great era. And, you know, perhaps an aberration, and perhaps that's the thing that jolts them out of their staleness is to really get whooped because sometimes, you know, sometimes that can be quite cleansing. You know, nothing nothing quite so soul-cleansing as getting your, your butt stomped and kicked. And if so, then, then Clemson ought to be pure as a driven snow after what Notre Dame did to them on Saturday night. Very interesting time to see how those two programs respond particularly in the SEC, how the surrounding programs react, and also what it means for a program like Ole Miss that's certainly still in the thick of the SEC West race right now, just need a little help against LSU and to take care of their own business, and whether if an opportunity were to present itself at Auburn or you know maybe even elsewhere for Lane Kiffin, does he believe that this is a place that will give him the resources to constantly battle in that environment, which is also the question I talked a lot about TCU is really the question, isn't it? I mean, at the end of the day, it's the same question for Steve Sarkeesian as they move in to the SEC and, you know, they have a big opportunity Saturday night. If they win, it'll almost certainly be the first of two meetings against TCU. If they lose, it really wouldn't take that much for it to still be the first of two meetings for Texas against TCU, but they're, they're moving into a new realm of challenges as well. Every, every Monday on this podcast, I jump into the tenet shared with me years ago by the legendary basketball coach, Bob Knight, who I call basketball games with. And he told me on many occasions, dumb loses more than smart wins. We've had some fun with this. You find something, you know, really ridiculous or goofy or, or stupid that happened during the week. And you're able to go, ha ha, see there, dumb loses more than smart wins. But the one thing you need to remember about that axiom is it's not just that dumb loses. It's the last part of it, more than smart wins. So what does that mean? That means that on the other side of the equation that you can occasionally get caught being too smart. And it's not that it's, it's not that you're dumb for making the decisions that you do. It's just that maybe you get a little too smart for your own good. Um, 
Here are the two instances in where I would say that Oregon State and Jonathan Smith fell into the trap of maybe trying to be a little too smart for their own good. They're playing Washington on Friday night. They have the lead. They get the ball back. They churn up some uh, some yardage. They're in the midst of a 12-play, 63-yard drive. They get stopped on third and one. They bring in Jack Coletto, who is a jackhammer hybrid guy, great in short yardage. And they decide they're going to go for it on fourth down, fourth and one. I'm, I'm actually good with that. I mean, you're, they're well within field goal range. Uh, they could put points on the board, make it an early two score lead. Could see the merit in that, but that's conservative. I actually see the merit in trying it on fourth down. They try it, they get stuff, doesn't happen. All right. They get back. They drive down again after a blocked punt. Now they've got fourth and three from the 15. Now fourth and three, it's not fourth and one, right? So now you've had a lot of things go your way. You've taken an early lead. Analytics said go for it on fourth and one. You do. Doesn't work. Okay. You get the ball back. You drive back down there again. You're in the red zone again. You get stopped on third down. It's a little windy. I've got that. But you're on the 15. You're talking like a 32, 33-yard field goal attempt, depending on where you like to line it up. They go for it on fourth and three. You know what happens. They get stopped again. So all... And I'm not sure exactly what their book said on fourth down, but they opted to go for it again. So now instead of being up 10, worst case scenario, 13, best case scenario, you're still just up seven after you've dominated the game. So you come down the end of the game and you lose by a field goal. So I don't think the decisions were necessarily dumb, but you forgot the first part. Washington was trying so hard to play the role of the dumb team that was going to find a way to lose and help you win. And instead, you fall into the trap of trying to be the smartest guy in the class, and you lose by one of those field goals. Worst First time, I'm good. Second time, probably take the points, get out of there, and, and try to keep the pressure on them. Instead, you give them a little life. Washington ends up winning the game. Washington's got a, a big rivalry game against Oregon this week in which, uh, which they could try to spoil some dreams as well. Oh, you know, one thing I failed to mention with the Notre Dame win over Clemson. Notre Dame beat North Carolina, stomped them early in the season. Now they've stomped Clemson. Well, they're not, they're not competing in the ACC like they did a couple of years ago during the COVID deal. But maybe if the ACC really wants to lure Notre Dame in as a full-time, full-fledged member, Maybe they could send them the honorary ACC championship trophy after they've won those two games. I don't know. They're going to beat the two teams that are probably going to be in, in the championship game. We're going to talk a little bit more this week about the matchups coming. Talk much more about Gary Patterson and the impact. And you're not going to hear much from Gary. I, I checked in on this. He's wanting to lay low. Sark doesn't like the assistants to talk, particularly if they're not on the field assistants anyway, which Gary's an analyst. Sonny Dykes was once on Gary's staff uh, when he was between head coaching gigs in 2017, if memory serves. So there's some common knowledge going both ways there and what ought to be pretty good passion play. We're going to talk plenty more about that. React to the playoff rankings that come out on on Tuesday night as well when we get Pete back and healthy and Bill Connolly is going to make some picks here as well. I've got some updates from our uh, remarkable crew here. First of all, Sarah, who's a huge Nebraska fan who has no hope against Michigan uh, this week, 
but she does still have good news. I understand, uh, Sarah, that you have found your Scott Frost T-shirt from Grammy. Where, where, where was the elusive Scott Frost T-shirt? <laughs> yes, I did find it, and it is currently in a quilt. I have a T-shirt quilt, and so it made its way to that. So it is officially memorialized forever. Okay, well... We'll see. We'll see what next Nebraska coach makes his way into the T-shirt quilt. I, you know what I said earlier that Bill O'Brien is probably going to leave Alabama for a head coaching job, not because he's getting pushed out again. Look, this was kind of a two-year arrangement. This guy, you know, I've said it earlier in the podcast. This guy was an NFL head coach. He's, I mean, he, you know, he wants to be a head coach again, and who can blame him for that? And I think a lot of people would like to have him. And who knows? Maybe one of those people will be Nebraska, and you can add a B.O.B. Um, patch into your Nebraska quilt there at some point out of a new Nebraska t-shirt. And Taylor, we once again just set the world afire with our picks last week. Yes, that's correct. Everyone went a rousing three and four. <laughs> uh, the highlight of the week, though, is everyone picked their locks correctly. Reese, you uh, correctly picked Washington State minus the five. Pete went Tulane minus seven and a half and Bill with South Carolina minus seven. So nice job. Well, I, I appreciate that. Well, that was that was an easy lock for mm-hmm. Washington State and Stanford because Stanford had done that thing. There's a controversy or the dispute between some of the uh, student organizations and the administration over parties. And the guy in the tree costume held up a sign a couple of weeks ago that said Stanford hates fun and got himself taken out of the tree costume. And, I mean, look, it's obvious if, as it has been said, that the fun is in the winning well, Stanford hasn't had much fun lately, so maybe Stanford does hate fun. They don't want them to have parties. They're not winning football games. Maybe they do. They should reinstate the tree guy and see if they change change their luck. Unless, of course, it, which is entirely possible, unless the tree guy is a little too obnoxious because, you know, some of those band guys at Stanford and some of the tree guys have been known to um, go sprinting across the line of proper etiquette and good decorum for mascots. So it could be that that was just the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back, but it still made it still made it fun anyway to get on their case a little bit for suspending a poor guy for saying Stanford hates fun because I mean, Stanford is like serious bastion of academia, all of that. Oh, my buddy, Rod Gilmore, Stanford alum, proud Stanford alum does not take offense to this podcast because I, I'm joking. I actually love going to Stanford. Everybody knows all year long, all I've done is uh, reference that um, that David Shaw moment of introspection about institutional knowledge and how much of it is valuable. And even though I didn't directly cite that quote today, I guess it is probably applicable to what I was talking about with Clemson, particularly into a lesser degree, Alabama, how much of that institutional knowledge is good and how much of it needs needs to be changed. A little bit. So the real question here is since I since I've gone solo on this, did you guys did you guys do a good job staying awake through it? Did you have to did you set an alarm for when for when I might shut up? Reese, we were actually on Slack as Sarah's Sarah and I tend to do when we're doing these shows to just kind of keep up with what's going on. And we were virtually applauding you the entire time because what you just did, man, that was really impressive. You know, we were, we didn't, I knew you would do a good job, but I didn't know it would be that good. And I was like, okay, if he goes for 20, 25 minutes, great. Like let's, we could pack it in. That's a viable podcast and we'll, we'll move on to Wednesday, but you turned in a great, a performance, sir. 
uh, well, I, you know, all I was doing was trying to set you up for a compliment there. But my favorite movie of all time is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And there is a quote uh, in there, a great scene between John Goodman and George Clooney, where they're, they're both, you know, kind of shyster guys, slick talkers, if you're not familiar with the movie. And at one point, Clooney says to John Goodman, this is on their initial meeting. He says, I detect that like me, you've been endowed with the gift of gab. So uh, I would say that I, for whatever my many myriad multitude of faults may be, the one thing that I have been endowed with is, is a gift of gab. And I will look forward to having Pete back uh, healthy and ready to go on Wednesday. And I appreciate all the work you guys did to set this up for this podcast. Appreciate everybody listening. Encourage you to uh, listen to our College Game Day podcast. We drop it three times a week, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. You can get it wherever you like to get your podcast. I'm told that the YouTube channel has been wildly successful. We appreciate you guys listening there as well. We'll see you on Wednesday with the next edition of the College Game Day podcast.